What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Sports Kingdom Show. I'm your host, Eric, the Duke of Sports Sklar. I am joined by my co-host, the one and only Mr. 360, Tyler Pacholke, and, of course, co-host, producer extraordinaire, Jacob Gonzalez. Before we start the show, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you decide to listen to the Sports Kingdom Show so you can stay up to date on the newest episodes of the show. Don't forget to follow at TSK Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow all of us as well at The Duke of Sports, at Tyler Pacholke, and at Jacob Double Underscore Gonzalez. On this episode of the Sports Kingdom Show, Jacob and I are in studio, and Tyler will be joining us on the phone. We are going to recap the final two episodes of The Last Dance and share some last thoughts on how we felt about the entire documentary. We'll also discuss ESPN's list of top 74 NBA players of all time. And in honor of that list, we will reveal our top 25 NBA players of all time. All right, let's start the show. What's going on, guys? How we doing? Episode 144. We're six away from 150. Isn't that crazy, Tyler? That is crazy, man. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, we're deep in it. Yeah. No. Uh, a for- good, good long ride. Yeah, from starting at uh, CSUN's radio station to your apartment to now the studio we are in currently, it's it's been a hell of a ride. Yeah, the show travels. Yeah, we we've had three different home courts, but I, I think we finally found a home. <laughs> yeah. But uh, how's wild, how's it going? Uh, I know California, quote unquote, extended their safer at home, stay at home order. Uh, another like three months, I guess they're they're shooting for July fourth to to reopen. I think. Yeah, I think that just means like a full reopen. Um, I don't think it means like everything's still going to be closed the way it was. Yeah, I think they're gonna. So to, people kind of freaked out when they saw that they're gonna start opening things in phases, and I think it's just gonna go a little bit slower than people were hoping, and people kind of just freaked out at the whole. It's going for another three months. Well, yeah, when you see the headline closed through August. And or through July, like then, yeah, you're gonna freak out a little bit. But yeah, it's just the protocols of you know the the distancing and the wearing of masks and temperature checks and stuff like that. Yeah, LA. I mean, I think they're smart by taking it slow. Just being in this big compact city, you know, any little any little bump in your progress could get out of hand. Yeah, definitely. So, all right, let's get into the topics for tonight. First, I wanted to to cover some housekeeping stuff regarding. Uh, COVID-19 and its effect on sports. Uh, First off, a couple of days ago, it was announced by the governors of Texas and California that depending on circumstances and if certain milestones and requirements are met as far as case numbers, death numbers, and, and all of that, they could see professional sports without fans starting back up in Texas and California as soon as the first week of June. Some hopeful good news. I think um, that they're putting this out there that 
the government is hoping that they can get sports back by the first week of June. Obviously, like I said, there have to be certain milestones and requirements met. But I think it's a a good sign. I know here at the the TSK show we've we've talked about science being the leader in terms of who d- decides when sports and all of that come back. But if the government is following science and hopefully they are and they think that sports can be back the first week of June, I think that's a good sign. Yeah, of course. I mean, it makes you feel like we're we're getting closer to the point where we can get some games. Fans or no fans, just, you know, get the games played again. But, I mean, I'm still just kind of skeptical. Uh, I, I still don't think June's going to – going to work out well and it still just comes back to the point with the whole you know uh risk of getting these players and coaches and all that infected i think one of the main questions that came to mind um when i start started to see all the articles about sports coming back and reopening of the counties and states is how can sports exist without fans it's tough and, and and obviously, as a, as three sports fans, you you dream about going to these games live, and they're so much better watching these events live. TV's fine too, and right about now, I can use anything. It doesn't matter, TV or in in person. But I think being in the stadium live is just a, a feeling that you can't describe when you're at a sporting event, and it's just it's going to be tough. Obviously, they're going to have to go with this method because there's too many people in one stadium and that's just not going to fly with it's states. too big of a risk. Yeah, It's too big of a risk. Just imagine having to test all these people. And so that was the main thing that I thought about is like, how are they going to exist? It's going to be tough for these players because initially LeBron going to the NBA, they said that they didn't want to play without fans, that they wanted to return back to the game when fans were going to be allowed back into the stadiums and arenas, but that is tough. Though he went back, he went back on that comment though, and re- exactly after after realizing what he said and the effect that the coronavirus was having on the masses, and I think with sports without fans, it's an adjustment that the players are just going to have to make. But also, you got to remember they grew up playing in smaller arenas coming up in high school college some of these guys didn't go to major universities but the the thing is those had at least maybe 100 people on a given night and this is going to have probably close to maybe 20 and that's including like staff and stuff like that i think it'll be more than that i think it'll be more than 20 i don't think i don't think so only because they don't want to take the risks they'll allow sports to return by a case by case basis you know county by county state by state but they're not going to allow multiple people there. Maybe families of some sort, but it's going to be mainly trainers and coaching staff. Tyler, what do you think about the adjustment players are going to have to make with without fans? No fans. Yeah, I mean, obviously you want fans, but I'm not really overreacting to that concept because I just believe that it'll it'll it's just like it's just what we have to do for now until we can figure out this thing, and then it's like. You know, we might have to do it for a whole year. You know, might be maybe even longer than that. I don't know. But eventually we'll get ahead of this this virus, we'll have a vaccine or whatever, whatever it takes to kind of like eliminate that threat. And then things will be, you know, more back to normal. So I don't think it's like a permanent, you know, no fans. So I think the players want to play bad enough and watching it on TV is a good enough product that, it's it's not really a factor. I mean, it's just what we have to do until things get back to, you know, 
more so closer to what it used to be like. Well, for California, though, uh, the governor has said that he doesn't want people returning back to, you know, going to see the games live and stuff like that until there's a vaccine. So that's that's pretty tough. We won't see fans yeah, but, in these yeah, arenas for the next year, at least in California. Who knows about the other states like Texas and Florida, what they're going to do? It's not essential. Well, yeah, no, it is. It's a hundred percent not essential. They just—that's why he's uh, saying they won't be allowed back into the arenas. Fans will not be allowed back to watch these games live until there's a vaccine. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Exactly. So it's not really that big of a deal. I think eventually we'll get a vaccine and fans will be back in the stands. It might be a little different. There'll be different protocols, no doubt. But I'm, you know, I don't think it's it's going to be too bad. I, I'd rather get you know get the games going, have media and like training staff there, and call it a day and, until we figure this out. Totally. So, in the spirit of the leagues trying to bring back their sports and their seasons, uh, a lot of talk has been made about these quote unquote hub cities being used, uh, cities in Texas, cities in Florida, cities in. Uh, Nevada is uh, Las Vegas in Nevada. So this morning, Sham Sharania tweeted out that the NBA has Orlando slash Disney World as a clear front runner for a return to play site for resuming the 2019-2020 season. Orlando has gained a significant advantage over Vegas and the other cities that the NBA was considering. Now, let's also not forget that Disney slash ABC which in turn means ESPN's relationship with the NBA in terms of TV rights. Sources from Walt Disney World tell Keith Smith of Yahoo Sports, quote, we are confident we'll be hosting the NBA in some fashion. It may not be the entire league, but we believe the NBA will be here to at least finish part of their season. Still hurdles to cross, but we are preparing as if that is the case, end quote. So, this idea of a hub city in Orlando at, at Disney world, it's seeming more likely that it's going to happen. And according to the athletic, the NBA is shooting for a mid June training camp for teams. And that would take place for about a month. And then they would resume the season around mid July. What do we think about this scenario, fellas? Uh, it's, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse, but it's just like, <laughs> If it happens, I gotta take it. But I just, I'd rather, rather just call this season, you know, done. And it's always gonna have an asterisk, no matter what. What you know, finish it or not finish it. So, you know, like I've said before, just cut, just cut this season. It's cool thinking about Disney, you know, Disney World, that huge campus, and you know, using those facilities. But I just still feel like even if you, even if you like got approved to like play games without fans, it's still such a risk. I mean, you know, we talked about elderly coaches being, like, susceptible. Even if you test everybody, I still think it's, like, if you don't have a vaccine, it's so hard. And then you got, like, last time I forgot to bring up Larry Nance Jr., who has Crohn's disease. Yeah, players you know, with like, underlying health conditions. So is it fair? And then, we, you know, we brought Carl Anthony Towns, and it's, like, I'm sure that there's players that have family members that have diseases with, you know, uh, you know, immune systems that are, are weakened. So I just don't believe it's really fair to, like, A, ask those players to play, and B, if they don't want to play, how can you let the rest of the season go on? It's just not fair. And 
And, you know, the other thing I was thinking about the other day was like if in that Eastern Conference, I forget what the standings were, but I know 9 and 10 were really close. It's like, damn, you would have like a lot – like if the NBA just started with, in the playoffs, I would like to if I was like those 9 and 10. <laughs> you know, like how are you going to start the playoffs in a season that we didn't sign up for basically? Well, yeah, even you the know, even the West was like that though. There was a bunch of teams fighting for that eighth spot still. 9, 10, 11 yeah, in, yeah, the, yeah. in the West are all – uh, the same amount of games out from the eight spot. Okay, so so it's the West. So it's like I would want to sue the league if I was those teams because, you know, you got to make a, an argument that we're we're on the playoff run. Someone is bound to you know drop out and someone's bound to get in, and you're just going to call it when we didn't finish our 82 game season. It's not like a lockout year where you agree to a season beforehand. And there's just all sorts of things that I think are not fair to like either jump to playoffs, you know, come back to the season and play in any regards. It's just like, I wish they would just scrap all this bullshit and start planning for what they're going to do next year. In in theory, I think it's going to be, it looks good, but Tyler does have a point. You're going to start to pack in all those people. Let's just say it is at like Disney world and going forward, in theory, again, it looks like a great idea, but if multiple people start testing positive for it, what are you going to do as the league officials? Because if one, be, one yeah, because you uh, work so hard to get it started up again, and then you have to shut it down another time just because more people start coming up positive again. So that's going to be tough. Yeah, it's like two steps forward, three steps backwards. Oh, 100%. So looking at, at what Texas is doing, they're basically saying that if three or more people get infected or test positive for it, that the league is going to have to work with state officials and local officials to see how it's going to pan out and right. if they should shut down that league again or how it's operating within that state. So it's going to be tough. The the It being held at Disney World, again, it looks great because you're kind of isolating all of it there and having all the practices there, all the players there, coaching staff, so on and so forth. But you're also – that's a lot of people in one, in one uh, area. You know, regardless if it's just, yeah, regardless if it's just the players and coaches. Wasted energy, wasted resources. NBA is just like tripping, thinking that they're going to come back. I mean, you just got to see that society is not going to go back to normal anytime soon. Even if it does open up, things are not going to go back to normal. You know, we have no idea. We have no idea what's going to happen. No one does. Even the experts, you don't know what's going to happen. So. I just think it's foolish to try and make this run. I mean, at this point, like starting the season in October, like you normally do is a stretch. Yeah, definitely. So I think, like, I think it, you, next season's already getting pushed back. Save, why, why not try to save that season and try to figure out, you know, if it's Disney world, like try to figure out in October, don't try to figure out this year. I don't know. That's, it's just kind of, it's it's ridiculous that the NBA is pushing so hard. I think on this. I think the main answer. I, I think I, even if it works, it's not it's not a good thing, you know. Yeah, but I think ultimately the main answer from the NBA's perspective is money. Uh, which which is just like an ethical, like, it looks horrible. I mean, so so money. So you're gonna push push the boundaries, playing around with this this virus that's going around, like changing everybody's lives. Uh, for money, that just doesn't look good. You know, you you made the NBA made such a good decision closing early and being a front runner to society. Basically, um, they're just blowing it on this end. 
Yeah, the end of the season and in the playoffs is obviously where they make the most money, and they are desperately not trying to scrap the season. But we've, me and Tyler have said this before, you've said it before, that the more and more you delay trying to restart this season, and I know it's tough because they really don't know how they're going to do it. There's just so many different factors in it, and it makes it that much more difficult. But the more and more you delay this season on trying to get it started up again, you're affecting the next season, and that's already going to happen. Yeah. The next season's already going to be affected by it. Yeah, so Danny Green, he, uh, Danny Green of the Los Angeles Lakers, obviously, uh, he went on the Load Management Podcast, which is uh, a part of Complex Magazine's podcast network, and he basically detailed what it was like to work out at the Lakers facility for the first time since it has been opened. The Lakers and 17 other teams throughout the NBA, so 18 of the 30 teams, have opened their practice facilities for voluntary social distance workouts. And uh, I wanted to read some of the quotes from Danny talking about what he had to go through just to even get into the building and then what it was like to work out in the Lakers facility. So the first quote, he says, uh, I got tested before entering. They do the, they do the swab. They stick a Q-tip in your damn brain, scramble it around. After you test negative, you come in the facility. You have to wear your workout gear as you come in. The shoes that you have on, you have to take off at the door. They give you flip-flops at the front. You have to sanitize your hands, sanitize your phones, keys, etc. The next quote he has, then you walk in with the the flip-flops that they gave you, and whatever it says in the schedule that they give you, that's where you start. So if I start in the training room, I'll go to start in the training room and get treatment. Once you're done in the training room, you you have your time in the weight room, on the court, however it is, vice versa. Then he says, but when you're working with the trainer, you're not supposed to be touching. You're supposed to be 12 feet apart. So they instruct you what to do, how to do it, and you do your weights. And then the last two quotes, for the players, you're allowed to take your mask off if you can't work out with your mask because obviously you can't breathe. Uh, But the training staff, everybody has masks on. When you get to the court, they have a seat for you where your shoes are. You change into your basketball shoes. Then you have your time that they put on the clock, like 45 minutes or so. So they they only get a 45-minute workout on the court. And then once that time is up, you have five minutes to get out of the facility. You don't use the locker room. You can't shower there. You go to your car, and then you go home. So it, it sounds like a pretty rigorous process just to even get in the building for these players. Well, yeah, it's everything is planned out, and you can't touch anything the people are regulating and rightfully so because oh, they, sure. yeah, they don't want it spreading there to a trainer and then for a trainer to take it back home and spread it to his family. But for me, it's like to go through that entire process. It's, it's almost just like to, just to get a workout in. Is it worth it? Uh, it's only worth it. If you don't have the in home setup that, you know, like there's some guys that, you know, I don't know if Alex Caruso's home setup is the same as LeBron's, you know, and we've talked about that on the show before. It's and it's like if I, you know if a player needs to get a workout in, it's worth it. You know what else are you doing? Yeah. But, uh, it's I think for the most part working out isn't an issue, and probably for a lot of guys are working out more than they used to. You know, I think guys like Lonzo Ball, you know, that I follow pretty close, seems to be like hit another level when it comes to like weight rooms and stuff like that. Yeah. No, I. I... I must. I wasn't really questioning. Is it worth it to to go in and get the workout? It's. Is it worth it to go through that process for every single player 
to ramp up for a season that has to be resumed and then ultimately the league gets shut down well, again. I think it's good in the sake of progress where like if you're coming at it from, you know, a really conservative approach, which they are, which I think is the right way to do it, then you can actually kind of learn from it and, you know, know that like, okay, we've done this. Um, okay, it's like a controlled study almost, you know, especially yeah. when it comes to like the Lakers facility. I'm sure that the, the Lakers are, in, you know, in close touch with the medical community more so than we are. Well, and you even know, the Lakers, like, the Lakers practice facility, UCLA Health is in the name of it. So UCLA yeah. Health Center is probably doing all yeah, they can so, to help the Lakers as well. So rather than having the public go out to like a 24 hour fitness, it's like that is like so much more, you know, we're not close to these medical communities like the Lakers are. And, they, and so I think it's good in the sake of progress just for like society's sake as far as just like figuring out where we're gonna, what we're going to do after this thing and how we're going to start living our, our lives and what we can get away with. There's going to be bumps along the road, but it's, it's like a good slow kind of baby step, yeah. I guess. All right, and then the last uh, housekeeping item I had as far as this topic, the NCAA voted to allow student-athletes for football and men's and women's basketball to return to campus starting June 1st on a voluntary basis and that the final say on if student-athletes would be allowed to return would be up to the individual teams and conferences, and the NCAA will vote on other sports returning to campus on a voluntary basis next week. I think it's pretty obvious that they would let the football and basketball players back first because those are obviously the cash cows that support all the other sports for these universities. So I think it's a a step forward in terms of progress. Um, we talked about it last week, how we we all were impressed with the NCAA letting the health officials take the lead and saying they're not going to mandate an official start date for everybody that's uniform and that they'll let state and local officials and health officials come up with that decision for the universities. But yeah, I mean, it's just a step forward, I guess. See, my only, the only reason why I'm nervous about this particular subject as not being progressive is like, who knows, you know, state officials, like, when it comes to college football, college football is such a money maker that it probably the money that is generating, you know, politicians probably have some sort of stake with, you know, the money makers at these universities. Yeah. And so it's just like, you never know. That may be a little conspiracy theorist, but it's just like when it comes to college football, I'm, I'm just always a little more hesitant than the other sports because of the money. So I tend to think that this is like what you said before as just a huge cash grab. And when it comes to football and volleyball, you just you have to invite a woman's sport, you know. So that's kind of like their way of saying, hey, we're going to try and start getting sports together. You know, we'll start in the fall. That seems all kind of like too good to be, you know, kind of like a coincidence almost when I just think that. Well, it's billion dollar multi-billion dollar market of college football is probably what's really trying to push that forward even on a political level. Yeah, it, well, and it's funny you said, like, you weren't trying to be, like, a conspiracy theorist or anything, but, I mean, let's be real here. Some of these head football coaches for these universities are the highest-paid state officials in those states. So they have influence. Uh, isn't it? It's an insane amount. 
I, it's like an insane amount of coaches that are the highest. I'm pretty sure Nick Saban's the highest, the, the highest paid state uh, official in the state of Alabama. In the country. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure like that. I, I don't think the, I don't think like the, you know, the president and stuff like don't make, I think he's the highest paid state official in like the country. The president makes $400,000 a year for every year. He's in office. Oh yeah, so like you know, Saban's handing that out on recruits. Yeah, it's just like that's Trump change. That's pot, that's spending money. You know, that's 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 easy. You give that to three star recruits. That's nothing. And so that's where that's kind of my. But that's where that suspicion comes from. So uh, when it comes to college football and opening up, I'm almost I'm a little more suspicious. Um, I do think it's cool that the the NCAA was backing off and letting the states decide but now the kind of issue is are the states deciding because of college football's revenue i think college is going to be a little bit tougher only because they have a lot more moving parts too they have more uh sports to come back it's not just basketball and football you know they have uh basketball for women's as well a lot of these colleges track field stuff like that soccer so for them it's going to be a little bit more difficult even if they do plan to bring it back uh, in the fall semester, which a lot of campuses have said that they're closed for well, the fall exa- semester. And that, that well, was my next po- No, sorry. Go ahead, Tyler. Well, and this is why, you know, these kids should be getting paid. You know, if you ever getting paid, this wouldn't be such an issue. But now you're asking these kids to risk their health, and they're not even getting paid. So it's right. like one thing to ask, like, NBA players to risk their health. It's like these these kids aren't even getting paid, and their schools aren't even opening. So it's just like. Yeah, I mean that's I think it's bullshit. College football, you know, trying to start it off is just super suspicious to me. Yeah, no. What I was what I was going to say is, how can you ask these student athletes to come back if you're not even asking the rest of the student body to be present physically on campus? Yeah, so it's yeah, so it's like it's you know, it's just it's funny, you know, because it's like this is just a joke. Like the NCAA is just like so so corrupt. Uh, and, and and so like involved with you know like so many different le- levels to it because of how much money they make it's it's kind of sick taking advantage of these kids and stuff and people's health you know risking people's health and taking advantage of kids just to make some money yeah but i mean like we say <clears throat> sorry like we say we just have to sit and play the waiting game now while we wait for these state and local health officials to to make the next move and say when these sports leagues can take that next step. Yep. But all right, let's move on now to the last dance. Obviously, episodes 9 and 10 were on Sunday. They were about the last two championships for the Bulls in the 1990s. They faced the Utah Jazz in the NBA Finals in back-to-back years in 97 and 98. Episode 9 had an average of 5.9 million viewers. Episode 10 had an average of 5.4 million viewers. And then the entire documentary, all 10 episodes, averaged 5.6 million viewers every Sunday night. It It is the most watched documentary in ESPN history. And like we've been doing the last month, uh, for the last time, I just have a list of moments from both episodes episodes nine and 10 and we'll just kind of go through them and share our thoughts and then at the end of this i thought it would be good for all three of us to kind of just give a wrap up like our our final thoughts on the entire documentary as a whole we good with that yeah all right 
So the first thing I had on the list was the rivalry with Reggie Miller and the Indiana Pacers for the Chicago Bulls was remarkably like the the Pistons. And Michael Jordan even said that it was personal for him against the Pacers. And he even said that Indiana was their toughest competition outside of Detroit. And what I found interesting was I think by 98, even with everything that had gone on between Michael Jordan and Reggie Miller, obviously we saw the fights and the, the scuffles. MJ respected Reggie Miller, I think, and we, we kind of saw that when they dapped each other up as Reggie was leaving the postgame press conference after game two. And as MJ was heading to the podium, they kind of dapped each other up. How's the family? Uh, I think uh, MJ was like, uh, you guys gave us uh, everything you had or and Reggie was like, yeah, you knew we were going to bring it, something like that. Something where it wasn't like your normal uh, interaction, I think. Talking with down. He, wasn't, he wasn't talking down to him. He was showing him. <laughs> yeah, he was he, like, you gave, you gave us a hell of a fight out there, you know, and I knew you would. Yeah, and so. Just, you know, obviously, there, he wasn't, like, talking to him like a little bitch. Like, he would some other people. Right. And so I, I think ultimately MJ respected Reggie. D- do you guys get that sense? No, he. I think he did only because Reggie didn't back down to him. And, and Jordan knew that Reggie was a killer. He's one of my favorite players. And I think the what he what he saw from him in that series and even prior to that, because they faced each other during, throughout the season years before that he knew that Reggie was a killer. Reggie Reggie was coming for you. And you saw that when the Pacers and Knicks had their whole rivalry, too. And for Jordan to see him in 98 in that playoff series to get to the finals, he knew that it was all on the line right there. That was potentially their last season. Of course it was. And he knew that Reggie and the, and the Pacers, especially Bird, Bird mentions it, he was coaching at the time, that this was their chance. This was their moment to dethrone the Bulls. Yeah, they wanted to be the ones to break them up. Yeah, so that's why Jordan respected Reggie, only because of that's the mentality he brought to his team. Yeah, I definitely think he respected Reggie. I mean, to say, you know, the things that he said were, like, as flattering as it gets from Jordan. You yeah. know, to, say that, <laughs> to say that he was, you know, Indiana was the second toughest team he played to the Pistons. Like, that's pretty, like... That's high praise. That's that's insanely high praise. And, and I think, you know, had to do with a lot of things. You know, Reggie came in in the late 80s. But he wasn't, he wasn't like a new young kid. and. Reggie was at all the UCLA runs, the Space Jam runs, all the all Eastern All Star games. So it's like they had a lot of exposure, and you know, like Jacob said, he respected the mentality of the, you know the killer and not backing down. And so uh, you know, MJ definitely has a ton of respect for Reggie. Yeah, and let, I mean, let's not forget that uh, only a couple years later, mostly that core team of Pacers was in the finals against Kobe and Shaq and the Lakers. Yeah, it's too yeah, it's too bad, man. They were just a they were just a, a half step slower in that in that at that time, you know. Yeah. Smith and Reggie and I think Reggie was in year seventeen or something like that when he retired. Yeah. Which wasn't too long after. Yeah. All right. The next thing I had on the list, Scotty missing both free throws in game four of the Eastern Conference Finals which leads to Reggie Miller's shot to ultimately win the game. I thought it was such a vet move by Reggie when it was at the end of the game 
where he forced the officials to make a call when... And they didn't. Yeah, no, the refs didn't, and they let the play happen, and Reggie hits the shot, but Jalen Jalen Rose says it in his interview. It's like, put the camera on Larry's face when Reggie hits the shot because he knows there's still time on the clock, and... Yeah, it wasn't over. Yeah, Larry's just looking... Larry's just looking like, ah, shit. Michael still has time to get a shot off. The best part of that, though, was Reggie describing how he was able to create space. Because if you pay attention, and a lot of sports fans will know this, especially highlighting the 90s, you'll see that Reggie pushes off and they don't make the the call. Because like he said, he put the pressure on the officials to make the call. They didn't make the call. But the way he describes it in his interview, he says, I lightly (laughs) gave... MJ a little shove, yeah. and I was able to create space. That To me, that was the best moment in his interview. That was a great little segment, for sure. I love that. I love just kind of hearing those, all those little perspectives. That was, uh, because was they're, not, they're not going to come out and say, oh, yeah, I shoved him. It's like, like we'll, we'll get to this, but like Jordan and, and Byron yeah, Russell, but, but they're not going to say that. Yeah, no, but he did, and he said it away jokingly. It was funny. I thought yeah, he shoved whole, him 100% whole, and got away with it. The, the whole thing, the whole thing was 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 good. Uh, it was it was funny to hear, you know, to hear it. It was a good little segment. Yeah, uh, one of my favorite parts of episodes nine and ten was at the end of episode nine, where Michael's telling Larry, "You bitch, fuck you," as he's uh, walking off, uh, uh, like in the bowels of the the arena, uh, and Larry's. Uh, the coach of the Pacers and Michael's walking off winning about to go to, to the finals. And that was Michael's way of saying good game. Yeah. You know, and that was another one of those, like obviously he has a ton of respect for Bird, So uh, just meeting up like that was uh, showing a ton of respect. It was funny to hear their trash talk, obviously. Yeah. And they, they had built up a friendship over the years, especially after, uh, Larry was past his prime and that time they spent on the dream team and all of that. So yeah, no, like you're saying, Tyler, all those little nuances of seeing the, the interactions was, was great to see. And then obviously Carl Malone getting MVP in 97 was Michael's motivation. He didn't need much. We all know this, but Carl, he he even said no disrespect to Carl. Yeah. He, he knows Carl's a good player, but, and he was friends with Carl too. He just he just used that as fire to ignite him in that series. Right. And then Michael retelling the story of how Brian Russell got onto MJ's list when MJ was playing baseball and Brian Russell was a rookie and he started mouthing off at MJ when MJ had come to visit the Jazz to say what's up to Stockton and Malone when they were in town in Chicago to play the Bulls while Michael was playing baseball and just that how Michael put him on his list. I thought, I thought it was a great story and I grew up playing in an AAU program that Brian Russell's kids played for. They're younger than me. So I I got, I got a chance to kind of know Brian and I never really, I never asked him about, the shot. Did, did you? Yeah. Did you ask him if MJ pushed off? No, I never. No, you should have. I would never ask him that. But I just, it was funny seeing all this stuff, and like, I, I kind of know the guy. But I, I later found out after episodes nine and ten aired, Brian Russell and Carl Malone were the only two notable players to 
to decline being interviewed for The Last Dance. And the director, I believe, told that to Scott Van Pelt on SportsCenter after episode 10 had aired. Well, yeah, they don't want to be interviewed. Yeah. It's funny because the first thing that comes to mind is I think when this was midway through its season, um, who was a Patrick Ewing said, like, I don't, I don't want to talk about this. Like, I lived through it. I don't want to keep, you know rehashing it over but he, and over but again. But he went and he was interviewed. He yeah, was he, a part yeah, of the, yeah, the, he was the documentary. Yeah, he was he was willing to do it. Carmelone didn't want to do it though. No, I think I think like that reasoning Pat Shewing is why Brian Russell didn't want to do it. I think for sure he just was like, I don't want to li- I don't want I don't want you to interview me and ask me how it felt to hit a game have Michael hit a game winner over me. You know, I think that that for sure is why Russell didn't do it, but Malone, I just think, is, I mean, I don't know if you know, but he just is a recluse. He's not going to come in the limelight. Yeah. He's got a troubled past. He's got a troubled past. Very. Twitter, you know, Twitter crucified him during during those episodes. So it's uh, it's no surprise to me that Carl Malone uh, didn't do interviews. And I think that's still, it has nothing else. It, you know, that's just how he is. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't, he doesn't come out because he's not acceptable well. Yeah, no, Carl Malone definitely has a, a checkered past. He, Him and Kobe, uh, before Kobe passed, they don't talk anymore because of something Carl Malone did in regards to Vanessa. And it, it Carl Malone's an interesting character. I'll, I'll just leave it at that. And he's like a redneck, too. Yeah, Even yeah. when he was in the league, he loved fishing, He's very hunting. country, very yeah. country. Uh, Barkley always yeah, calls no, him the black can, redneck. <laughs> you, can do, you can do your own research, but, I mean, Twitter... Obviously, like if you're paying attention, just hung him out to dry. So that's why I, I think he didn't. It's not a surprise that he didn't do the interview. Yeah. All right. The next thing I had on the list, the flu game. It wasn't really the flu game, according to Michael and and the guys that were in the hotel room that night. It, it, it was the food poisoning game. But either way, no matter what the story is, whether it's the flu, food poisoning, or People believe he was really hungover. I also it, heard the hungover story. It, yeah, it, it doesn't matter to me. He Jordan was sick as a dog. He he was able to have the game he had, no matter what it is. It's one of the best performances in basketball history, and it it was interesting to hear the details being shared of what they say happened. But I think ultimately, people are still going to debate that he had the flu, it was food poisoning, or he was hungover. And for one thing people should take notice is that, one, he went out there and played, regardless. Yeah. If it was a flu, hungover, sick, whatever, food poisoning. But he didn't just go out there and score, like, 10 points. I don't know if you have a stat, you're the stat line. 38 points in like, 40, that's 44 per, minutes. That's pretty impressive. Like, to put up those numbers and being sick at the same time, like, that's tough. Again, didn't just go up there and put up 15, you know, and 6. He went out there and put up 38. Yeah, I uh, I knew there was uh, conspiracies behind the flu game, but I'm definitely sold that it was food poisoning. Now I thought that was a, I thought that was a nice little peek behind the curtain. Just hearing the trainer and his his like buddy, uh, yeah, his, person, his, his best name. friend, personal assistant George. I can't yeah. I can't remember his last name. Yeah. yeah, just hearing those two and Mike, it's just like fuck. That's what happened for sure. Yeah, and it's just like it just makes sense, man, in Utah. Just like those fans are crazy, so it's just like that. Uh, I'm sold now. That's what I believe. Yeah, I'm sold on it. I, I I wasn't sure to be honest with you. Like when I mean, watching when when I came into that episode, I believed it was the flu, 
uh, I knew that there was a conspiracy behind it, but I just kind of always like, oh, it's the flu, you know? Yeah. But and then it's cool enough. Even I remember watching the flu game live. Yeah. See, I, I, I don't remember yeah. that. I was only four uh, years I old. Mean, I remember this three peach so well. I mean, just, or like no, I was, I was three years old when the flu game happened. I remember Utah so much better than I remember Seattle. And, like, the Utah series is, like, one big series to me. It's tough for me to kind of, like – Both years just blend together? Yeah, it's hard for me to tell you exactly. But I know that I watched, like, you know, every game of both those finals. And I know – I do remember the flu game because of the commentation, you know, people talking about it the whole game. I mean, I don't know if you'll remember this detail, but do you remember the Bulls coaching staff having to wear earplugs while they were in Utah? I'd never seen that before. That's nah. that's crazy. Nah. Well, Utah's always been nah. a loud arena. Even to this day, if you oh. go there, the Jazz fans are insane. And we saw what happened but, with Jazz fans in Russell Westbrook. We know Jazz fans are nasty. That's common, though. I'm like sure. I'm pretty sure, like, Pete Carroll wears them, like, every game. You know, I, I don't think that that's as, like, as uncommon as as we think it is. I think yeah. people actually do that. But I didn't know that, that, that Phil Jackson did that. Yeah, I thought that was crazy yeah. to see. One, one little detail was funny, and I was like, oh, I forgot about the rope. And the rope that they had, like, out on the court to, like, hold everybody back. Oh, yeah, so they the didn't finals. rush the court. I, I, I don't think that they have that anymore. No, I think they, I like, they have it, it still, because I remember it for game yeah. seven of the 2010 finals. Was that? Okay. I was like, oh, they're, oh they're they so had that funny. for the Heat, one of the finals that the Heat won too. Yeah, yeah, I think they still do All that. People back, yeah, but uh, yeah. All right, next thing I had on the list: Steve Kerr's journey to the Bulls and John Paxson taking him under his wing at the end of his career, and ultimately both of them having very similar roles and similar moments as Bulls and as champions for the Bulls. Uh, I thought that was interesting to see the comparison and how. Steve kind of just seamlessly fit into to Paxson's role when Paxson retired. And then Steve actually got a little part where obviously Steve Kerr and Michael Jordan have this in common to where their fathers were both murdered. And I, I knew the story that uh, Steve's father had been murdered. I just didn't know the exact details. He was murdered on January 18th, 1984 by terrorists in Beirut, Lebanon, while Steve was in college at the University of Arizona. Steve's dad was a professor of Middle East studies, and he was, I believe, the headmaster or dean at the American University in Beirut, Lebanon, and he was shot by terrorists at his school in Lebanon, and they brought that up, and Steve kind of talked about it. And then what I found interesting was that the director even asked Steve if Steve Kerr and Michael Jordan had ever had a discussion about their fathers together. And Steve said they hadn't, which didn't surprise me because I, it's obviously a very touchy subject for both of them. But just for them to both have that in common, uh, I found it very interesting. And I, I, was, I was glad that Steve was able to have that moment in the documentary because Obviously, Michael Jordan overshadows so much of who the Bulls were that I'm glad Steve got that moment to to talk about it. Which I think that's what's great about this documentary is, yes, it highlights 
the 90s and the Bulls and mainly Michael Jordan, but you're getting these little nuggets like you did with Scottie Pippen's backstory, Horace Grant. You get um, Dennis Rodman's. Dennis Rodman's, his whole wild extravaganza <laughs> during the 90s. And then you see Steve Kerr because you see him now that he's still around the NBA. Obviously, he's a coach for the Warriors and just like how he was able to continue that championship mindset with the Warriors and win multiple titles with them. But you got to see his backstory. And yeah, Jordan at times seems to overshadow the documentary because, yes, it is about him. But at times it kind of takes the um, the the focus off of it and it goes more towards the role players that helped him win these titles. So I think to me that was great. Yeah, Steve Kerr is such a big, big icon in basketball now. With you know, success after the Bulls, winning championships with the Spurs, and then coaching at the Warriors. Obviously, uh, you know the documentary isn't just about Jordan. And, you know, they have to tell the whole story, and it was—I thought it was perfect. And that was, and it was really, really good, really good piece they did on Steve Kerr. I mean, that show hit, hit you pretty hard, and. And it shows you, you know, that stuff that Kerr went through, stuff that Tony Kukoc went through, stuff that Rodman went through and Pippen. It shows you why they became such, like, great competitors and were able to stick up with Jordan. These are tough, tough individuals, you know, mentally. Yeah. So uh, that that was a really good piece. And, and you know, I like to think that Jordan really appreciated it too, probably, you know, heard all that information for that first time. Yeah, and then the the I'll be ready moment uh in game 6 between Michael and Kerr. That was hilarious. Oh, it, I mean it's great. Cool. And Steve even saying it's like Yeah, I love how he told it. And Michael Mike Steve was saying how Michael always knew the cameras were around him so he was kind of whispering like Steve <laughs> yeah, be ready. Best, that was and the best Steve part. was just like so enthusiastic like yeah, I'll be ready, I'll be ready like he's over there shouting and giving <laughs> the game plan away on live TV. <laughs> I just I thought it was That's a great cool. moment. And then, it, was, it, was, it was good. And after after the game, MJ was like, "Tonight, Steve Kerr earned his wings, and I'm I'm very happy for Steve." So I, I thought it was great that Michael was able to give Steve his flowers at the podium because they they wouldn't have won the game without him. Yeah, no, it was awesome. Steve Kerr's the man. Great, great, great uh, speech at the championship parade. Oh, his recollection of how Phil drew up that play was hilarious. Yeah. Also, man, you know, you you look. I I think that one thing that I learned through this was that I'd probably go with the Bulls uh, over the Warriors. You know, where it was kind of in question because of how dominant the Warriors were. But it's like when you look at the lineup where they have, you know, Steve Kerr and coach with Pippen, Rodman, and Jordan. It's like to face that death lineup against the Warriors. I think the Bulls would just handle it. You know, they had some versatile shooting, and you know, it's a uh, it's it's been cool to get like more depth into those role players, kind of like Jacob said. Yeah, and then uh, there were two moments uh, specifically: one from '97 and one from '98. Uh, all I could think about when Michael jumped up on the scores table after Game Six was, or Game Six in '97 to win his fifth ring was Kobe jumping up on the scorer's table after game seven in 2010 to also win his fifth ring. So I, I just thought those images were, were very similar. And then the reporter asking Michael about game five of the 98 finals potentially being his last game and all of that. And MJ says, the job is not done, so let's not celebrate yet. 
that eerily reminded me of when Kobe was asked in the 2009 finals after game two and the Lakers are up 2-0 on the Magic. He was asked, why isn't he smiling? Why isn't he happy that they're up 2-0? And he says, what's there to be happy about? Job's not finished. So just me as a Kobe fan watching those and seeing those images and hearing that quote from MJ just took me right to those moments from Kobe's career because I know Kobe studied MJ like no other. So it's like, I feel like him jumping up on the scorer's table after, to win his fifth ring was calculated by Kobe. And the what's there to be, to be happy about jobs not finished was calculated as well. Yeah, if you watch their careers, they're almost mere images because Kobe did study Jordan and that was his idol. And, you know, he looked up to him. He would always call him. They were best of friends. People just didn't know it. And to hear stuff like this, because if you just watch the highlights, yeah, you could see how they had similar footwork, similar moves. Um, and how they played the game, you know, the, the passion, the aggressiveness, and the killer instinct. But now you start to see the little, little sound bites, so to speak, of what they said, how they're, how they approach the game mentally, and how similar word for word they were. It, that's what I'm, yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Is like it's crazy because now you really see how much Kobe idolized him and how strong that connection was between him and Jordan. Yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about the top twenty-five and. You know, I talk a lot about this kind of this point, but of course, I mean, MJ was the blueprint for Kobe. That's just what it is, and so uh, I'd be, I'd be, I'd question if you even knew who Kobe was if you didn't watch a Michael Jordan documentary and not instantly be brought to some Kobe memories. Yeah, for sure. It's it's gonna happen because those are the the documentary all Kobe's memories, and that's kind of what you know drove him to be. It was. Yeah. All right. The next thing I had on the list was uh, MJ's relationship with his security team was like a family. Uh, they highlighted a, uh, Gus let the head of the security team. He became like a father to MJ after MJ's dad was no longer around. And then before game seven of the 98 Eastern Conference finals, which was only the second game seven the Bulls had ever played in during their six championship runs. Gus comes back after a bout with cancer and having to deal with chemo and he comes back and he's ultimately the good luck charm for the bulls. Steve Kerr hits the shot in the fourth quarter to change the momentum and ultimately the bulls win and Michael even guaranteed before the game that they were going to win game seven. But I thought it was, I thought it was very nice and, and honestly really touching to, for them to even talk about the, the security team. Big part of MJ's life, obviously. Um, got a ton of respect for those guys. It was a cool little uh, insight into like, more of the personal side of it all. Well, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but again, I love this documentary. But after this has finished, though, I've seen stuff how Pippen, he's kind of mad how he was portrayed in the documentary. Same thing with Horace Grant. You've yeah. seen the whole thing with Horace Grant, too, yeah. right? I thought we were, I thought we would talk about that towards the end of yeah, the fi- our final thoughts. No, I'm just saying. I just well, I wanted to bring that up now just to see what you guys <laughs> thought about it now. Because it's like you see how good this team was. And it, it the, the documentary explains it, too, the what-ifs. Because 98, as soon as the season was over, they win their sixth ring. It's over. Jordan retires. Jackson's gone. Kerr's traded. Rodman's released, you know, so on and so forth. Pippen's gone too. And that team just breaks up. So it's always the what if. But now you see after this documentary, like how people are kind of mad, how they were portrayed in the documentary. Yeah. I mean, listen, Scotty's back was hurt going into game six. And like 
the way it was portrayed, is it me or does Scotty always have an excuse or he misses free throws or because that's what it seems like. Yeah. He refuses refuses to check in when a play wasn't called for him. And I I know Scotty migraine. Yeah. The migraine game. I I know Scotty fought through it in game six and he would, he put on a, a hell of a performance just being out there physically with the way his back was locked up. But I mean, the documentary definitely highlighted some rough patches for, uh, Scotty. And then with Horace Grant, Michael obviously pinned him as the guy who talked to Sam Smith about the controversial book, The Jordan Rules, and Horace obviously still denies it to this day. Yeah, he says it's BS. But, I mean, it's it's hard. MJ wasn't the only person saying that Horace was the one talking to, to Sam Smith. So Yeah, it's, if it's coming from multiple sources, then maybe you believe that it actually was Horace. I mean, you're just not going to make everybody happy. That's like how it goes with a documentary, you're going to manipulate the story to make it good TV, Um, you know, and so there's going to be some people that aren't happy, but ultimately I think Pippen, like, yeah, they did show some bad stuff, but it's like, he's still Scottie Pippen. I still think that he got mad respect and people still respect him. Yeah, he doesn't lose their respect. That's that's not not the thing. That's not the documentary's fault that Michael Jordan said that. Right. So that beef is not, that beef's not with the documentary. That beef lies with Jordan and the Sam Smith conspiracy. So it's like that has nothing to do with it. That was that was like probably an issue beforehand. It's just that it got brought up, so now he's pissed. So I mean, it's just kinda how it goes, I guess. That's kinda how I feel. And they did it was funny how they brought up all the, the times Pippin uh kinda like crumbled in the moment, you know, and he has a tremendous amount of stress on him. So that's probably why all these things would happen in big moments. But I still think ultimately Pippen came out on top. And if he's unhappy, then he's just, it's just kind of how it goes. Yeah. It's a personal yeah. issue. Yeah. Um, all right. The next thing I had, uh, Michael Jordan's kids made their first appearance in the entire documentary in the last episode, episode 10, uh, Marcus and Jeffrey Jordan said they were not allowed in Utah because their mom thought it was too hostile of an environment for young kids, but their sister Jasmine was at those games because she was a little bit older at the time. I would have liked to have seen his kids a little bit more in the documentary and not just an, in the last episode for a quick second. Uh, it would have been interesting to hear their perspectives of what it was like to grow up with a father who was Michael Jordan and what came with that. Yeah, but you only got that little to, think, nugget of uh, of uh, information from them just about the Utah series, and that's pretty much it. Well, I just think from, like, a filming standpoint, it's like the the whole thing is the last dance. It's the 97-98 season. So you're going over all these past things so you can kind of understand the importance of 97-98. And those kids were so young, it's not really they're, they don't have much of a perspective on the matter. And to just kind of keep it on theme, like, once those kids, you know, you start asking those kind of questions, then it becomes a documentary about Michael Jordan. Whereas the documentary is really not about Michael Jordan. It's about the 97, 98 Bulls, but Michael Jordan's greatness is why that season is great. So that's like kind of the main topic of it all. But that's kind of to me why the kids weren't brought in just because from like a theme standpoint, yeah. it's like you were six years old, eight years old or whatever when, when you know, the 97, 98 Bulls were going on. So uh, that's kind of my feelings on that, I guess. Yeah. All right. Uh, Next thing I had was John Stockton said in his interview 
that he never felt an aura around the Bulls or Michael Jordan, and he couldn't understand how players could even play against the Bulls and Michael Jordan if you felt that way. Yeah, well, this was good too. I thought I felt like this is kind of uh, kind of the whole like if you want to get like a kid playing really tough competition young before they're kind of like world stoppers because if you do you just jump in the pool in tenth grade, dudes are doing three sixty between leg dunks. So John Stockton, my point is, is played with Jordan when he was a rookie. So like he played in you know he played on the dream team with him. He played through the eighties with him. So it's like. Stockton saw him before he was like Michael Jordan, like this crazy aura of like 96, 97, 98, Michael Jordan. He knew him kind of as a young pup. So they were kind of like growing up together. And that's kind of why I don't believe that, you know, he's not intimidated by Michael Jordan because he's been his peer. Yeah, it makes he's sense. His dream te- he's his dream team teammate. He started, they started, you know, Stockton started one year before him. So it's, uh, I think that's where that comes in. That mentality is like, I, I saw this guy before. He was like, you guys got all weird about him. He's just a basketball player. Yeah. All right. Uh, next thing on the list, game three of the 98 finals was historic. The Bulls held the Jazz to the lowest amount of points in an NBA finals game history. The Jazz only scored 54 points. It was 49 to 31 at halftime. And the final score was 96 to 54 Every Bulls player scored in that game. Well, including what Bill Weddington on that last shot. Yeah. (laughs) That I didn't think was going to go in when he hacked it up. (laughs) This is another one that I remember very well, that game, just because of that. That was such a big deal. Like, newspaper, everything was about the score. Uh, And uh, I remember that game really well, actually. That was another one that was like, damn, this is – Take me down memory lane. (laughs) Well, the big story after game three was Dennis Rodman missing practice to go tape an episode of WCW Monday Night Nitro in Michigan. Dennis was fined $50,000 for missing practice, but the WCW paid him $250,000. So he's good. Yeah, so really Dennis won. And even some of his teammates were saying that, like, he's a good businessman for only getting fined 50k but getting paid 250k i thought it was really cool to see phil stick up for dennis even though he was mad at dennis but he stuck up for him in front of the media phil told a reporter when he was asked by the reporter she was like is dennis taking away focus from the nba finals by going off and doing this thing with wcw and Phil's answer was, no, you're the only one taking away focus from the NBA Finals by talking about that. I thought that was such great insight into parts of the genius and greatness that is Phil Jackson that even though he was pissed at Dennis and was obviously going to reprimand him because the team fined him $50,000, in front of the media, it was still a united front. He went to bat for his player and... He always had a way with media. I saw it on numerous, numerous occasions with him with the Lakers. I just thought it was great insight into the genius that is Phil Jackson and the way he deals with players, like, on an individual case-by-case basis. Well, see, that's why he's like such people. a great coach. Yeah, you, like people, Tyler. Yeah, exactly. He's he's such a great coach because, yeah, he has the, the, the plays and, you know, he has the schemes to get um, to get through games. 
and to match up with with opponents. But it's the managing of the egos that he was really good of. Look, having Jordan Pippen and uh, especially Dennis Rodman on one team, that's a lot of damn egos to put up with. And that's just not that's not counting the other, you know, eight, ten guys on the team. So just managing all of their egos and just the attitudes on the team, that's what he was so good. And the way he was able to relate to Dennis, which was shown in one of the previous episodes of The Last Dance, you just see how he kind of comes from a similar background and how he was kind of like that wild card of his family. And that's why he was able to relate to Dennis. And so, again, the whole ego thing, I think it's like that's like a key component of why he's one of the best coaches of all time. Yeah, I thought it was awesome how he handled the Rodman practice thing. I thought it would just show you, like you guys said, how well he can manage people. And he knew that like to get, you know, uh, to get the most out of Dennis, he had to let him, you know, kind of fly sometimes. And he, I'm sure that they disciplined that, him in a way that fits his personality. And, uh, you know, filled uh, that whole kind of keeping it in-house and, you know, not you know, not saying it to the to the media's face, and you know, kind of talking to Dennis away from everybody personally and dealing with it in house. That's the trait of like a solid foundation. So, you know, franchises that do that kind of stuff and protect their own, even when they're not necessarily right, and then they deal deal with it in house. That's just like that's how you know they're a good franchise. Yeah, and then. Uh... Worldwide Wob is a he's a great Twitter follow. Uh, he's big in the NBA Twitterverse. He he had the perfect tweet to to sum up that forty eight hour span that that Dennis had between Game Three and practice and all of that. In a he said quote in a forty eight hour span, Dennis Rodman played hooky to no consequence, whooped DDP's ass on Nitro, made the game clinching free throws in a finals game, and then went home to Carmen Electra. This that ho- sounds like a good night. He says this hot streak may never be conquered. Absolutely not. <laughs> and then uh, the whole sequence of having to sneak Dennis out of the facility while 300 media members were waiting for him was was quite the sequence and and footage to have and to watch go down. I thought it, I thought it was great, and it's it's what makes this documentary I think so special is all that behind the scenes access that those cameras were allowed to have during that last season. Yeah, Dennis is the man. <laughs> All right. Fucking legend. Uh, game six of the NBA Finals in 1998. We we kind of already talked about Scotty having a, a hurt back and all of that. But MJ carried the Bulls in game six like he had on so many other occasions. But the fact that it won them the sixth chip, the, the second three-peat, I think made it that much more meaningful for, for Jordan and for him to ride off into the sunset as a champion was great. And Bob Costas even said that the last like half minute plus of game six is one of the greatest sequences in sports history. Obviously the the bulls are down. Michael leads him back. He drives to the hole, gets the layup and then Michael's IQ, his basketball IQ being so high, he remembered that he'd be able to sneak a steal from Carl Malone coming from the backside. Malone didn't even see him coming. He gets the steal. And another part of Phil's genius was knowing when and when not to call a timeout. And the fact that he knew he didn't want Utah to have time to talk about a defensive strategy, once Michael got the steal and the Bulls had possession, 
it was an incredibly ballsy move by Phil, but it, it paid off, and it, it only adds to the legend that is Phil Jackson, in my opinion. That's like one of those coaching traits that kind of like separates coaches. Like, you know, do you call the timeout or do you let you play? Until, you know, one of those guys that lets people play through. And that just shows you the benefit of doing it, you know? Yeah. I think that would have been all right, even if you did call a timeout. But it just shows you the, the confidence and, and how well he is at coaching to, to have the balls not to call the timeout. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, Scotty and Dennis, when uh, it cut to their interviews of what they were thinking when Michael had the ball, Scotty was said he was just thinking, get the hell out of the way. Dennis said he was thinking, oh, he's going to shoot this motherfucker. Like, there's no way he's not shooting it, all this all this stuff. I just I thought it was funny to hear their perspective of what they were thinking. And then Michael said he knew he could get Brian Russell to bite on a move, and that was the first time I ever saw that angle of the shot that Michael took over Brian Russell. And in my opinion, I really don't think MJ pushed off anymore. Russell really wasn't on balance and his momentum kept him going in that direction. And Costas, uh, Bob Costas even said that he felt like it was the equivalent of a Mater D escorting uh, a patron to their seat at a restaurant. And that iconic last shot just sucked all the energy out of Utah to win game six and championship number six. I think watching it from different angles, I started to realize it wasn't a push off because before this documentary and years before, I always thought he kind of shoved them a little bit. Yeah. He gave maybe, maybe like what Reggie said, it was like that light push, but even so it looked a little harder, but then seeing it from that angle, you see Russell already going to the right and Jordan just stops on the dime pulls back and then Russell's still going and he slips at, at one point. He and also you, would slips. Have, you would have seen MJ's left arm extend a little more if he had given him a push. Yeah. Cause it didn't fully extend. It was almost extended at just maybe the elbow angle. And then he pulled it back to shoot it and Russell was still going and then fell. Yeah. I'm definitely with you guys. I mean, I think that I definitely thought there was more of a push off uh, than there actually was. And now that I see that angle, I don't, I don't believe I've ever seen that angle, and uh, I'm kind of just with score on that one for sure. Changed my, changed the way I believed it. There was a good amount of things through this doc that you know kind of changed my, changed my beliefs. So that was definitely one of them. Yeah, um, I just love champagne locker room celebration videos. So seeing them all in the locker room with the with the champagne spraying it on each other. Obviously, MJ and the cigars was a was a big deal. Leonardo DiCaprio coming into the locker room to congratulate uh, MJ. Carl Malone coming onto the team bus for the Bulls to congratulate all of them, I thought was a big-time move. And one thing that was always said about the older generation of basketball was that those guys hated each other. Those guys didn't like each other. I think in the last dance, it really pulled the curtain back on the relationships that these guys had during that time period and it's a lot more of a cordial and friendly relationship than we were led on to believe i think especially as a younger generation yeah you hit the nail on the head i think um i just believe now you can kind of give some sympathy to these kids that grew up in the social media era where they were just they were watched from a young age and the hype that michael jordan had all these kids have now and so there's cameras in their face everything's recorded uh, every tweet you ever send out, every MySpace post you ever had, it's like it's all there. 
And uh, it just seemed like, you know, that, that everyone was friends because you saw it and they wanted to paint this picture because it was physical play that people didn't get along. And just like you said, now we see that there was, there was way more camaraderie than, than we were led to believe. I mean, the fact that, you know, Magic and Bird and, and Jordan are all close. Those guys went to battle. It is, and, it, and it's funny to see the ones, you know, that truly they don't like, like the bad boy Piston, Isaiah Thomas's. Well, and even Danny Ainge and, Danny Ainge and Michael Jordan playing golf the night bo- or the day before yeah. Michael had 63 yeah. in the playoffs. Yeah, exactly. So that, so I think you hit the nail on the head that we were definitely led to believe that, you know, this generation was almost soft for being friends when that, that was kind of always going on. It was just a different day when it came to information and, right. and exposure and, you know, access. And we didn't have that before. Yeah. We didn't have the social media to see it back then. Yeah, so I think you're exactly right. Uh, all right. The last couple things that I had, obviously Jerry Reinsdorf saying that he tried to bring the team back together to go for number seven, but it was obviously a failed attempt. Michael said that he had never actually had any sort of direct dialogue or conversation with Jerry Reinsdorf about why the team was broken up and then the director hands Michael the iPad and he gets to see Reinsdorf's actual reaction or actual explanation. And MJ just kind of laughs at a couple things like, Oh, okay. That's, that's interesting. And MJ just is still hell bent on believing that he thinks they could have got seven in the title number seven and four in a row. If they had the chance to run it back. But obviously, Jerry Krause making the decree at the beginning of the season that no matter what, if the Bulls went 82-0, and Phil Jackson wasn't coming back. And the only way Michael was going to come back was if Phil was going to come back. And it was, it was very interesting to see Reinsdorf's explanation, Michael's reaction, and then it's like, well, Steve Kerr was going to get paid to go somewhere else he ends up in san antonio scotty pippen finally gets the payday he's been looking for and gets a five-year like 67 million dollar deal from houston so it's it was interesting to see and hear that explanation from jerry reinsdorf and to to find out what actually happened yeah the scene was set for for next season and reinsdorf tried to salvage whatever he could after they won that title but you couldn't because you've already tainted that with Jackson. Jackson said, no, I'm out. He's done. And honestly, in a weird way, I kind of felt like they left it at a good point. They left it on a high note because who knows if they would have come back to win or if they would have gotten eliminated by a team. You know, I just don't know. Again, it's always the what ifs, like I said before. And you just don't know if they come back and actually give that four Pete, you know, to, to the NBA. And so in a weird way, I kind of feel like it was good that they left on that note. They're champions in 98. They've won six in that decade. And to me, that was, to me, that, that's great how they left. See, to me, this was like the craziest shit to hear the whole documentary. And I thought that that was like the most jaw-dropping, like what the fuck type of, and I'm glad that, you know, Skip Bayless touched on this the next day. And I was kind of like, that's the kind of the reaction that I had was like, I couldn't believe what I was hearing and it's like mike was right you know literally if they would if jerry carlos wouldn't have said that one sentence like i don't or you know that one phrase that i don't care if we go 82 and no you're not coming back if he wouldn't have said that i i know 100 without a doubt 
that the Bulls would have came back and, and at least like been a, a, a contender if they were healthy. You know, it's like no doubt in my mind. And so that was just like mind blowing to hear like how important that phrase was that Phil had moved on. So like he 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 was always the first had bridge before the, the season started. If you wouldn't, if you would have just kind of like gotten through the tough relationship. Um, at the end of the day, you probably would have been able to get them all back, or most of them. Yeah, uh, that was just that was, and to to hear him say like he wanted to get Phil back, but Phil didn't want to come because you know that bridge had gone. That was just like unreal to hear to me that like it really was like that close to them coming back. Yeah, and, and they really they really would have like ran, they would have figured it out. Uh, I think to get Pippen and Rodman back and Phil back. And if you have Pippen, Rodman, Jordan, and Phil, it doesn't really matter if, you know, the other, you know, whatever comes is kind of a luxury, you know, if Steve Kerr, Luke Long, they leave, you still got your face, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that, Tyler, but obviously the, the counter argument to that is Michael was saying he would have come back on a one-year deal. He thinks Scotty would have come back on a, on a one-year deal. Steve Kerr would have had to come back on a one-year deal, all, all that kind of stuff. It's like, for me, the biggest part of it, was Scotty coming back and obviously Scotty's relationship with the front office with the front office was much different than Michael's because Scotty had been underpaid for so long. I really just don't see how how he returns. Yeah, how he turns down Houston's offer for a one year deal and obviously he didn't and we're not in this situation, but I I would like to believe that if they were able to get everybody back, they would have won four in a row. But there was no way I mean, they were going to get everybody back. I, I, you don't need everybody. You just need you just need you need Mike. You need Phil. Uh, but it's like I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that if if it came to a point where Mike was coming back and Phil was coming back, they just wanted three peat and Pippen was unhappy. Then I think that at that point would have been you know Jerry Krause was obsessed with McGrady. He was obsessed with Grant Hill. He was obsessed with Duncan. You know those are all kind of the names that I've heard. It's like he probably would have signed a trade to get something, whether it be one of those three guys or or something to kind of to bring with Jordan. And Jordan, I'm sold that Jordan was not done playing. He obviously came back three years later. So yeah. if you get a you get a different player in there with Mike and Phil and Rodman and you know a McGrady or Grant Hill or whatever, then all of a sudden it's kind of like uh, the same team but different and you know, all of a sudden you can kind of build on a younger star while kind of milking Michael's prime. And in that scenario, it's like, man, Jordan might've been able to make a run at four or five, six in a row. It's crazy. Yeah. And even, even Scotty said that even at the end of the day with all of the bad blood between him and the front office and all of that, he still called Jerry Krause the greatest GM of all time. Yeah. And ultimately I don't think that they would have had to like do that scenario. I think ultimately he would have just signed a one-year deal because of the the magnitude of the situation. Yeah, winning four four around with Mike. So, all right, last last two things on the list for me, and then we'll we'll share our final thoughts and move on to the next topic. Uh, the longest cigar I have ever seen, MJ was smoking at the end of the documentary. I just wanted to point that out. And then the last time the team was together, the exercise that Phil had them do that he had learned from his wife at the time where they wrote down uh, what the team and what the season had meant to them and then they would burn it and it was the last time the whole team was going to be together. 
Michael wrote a poem and I thought it like I thought it was very poetic. And Michael, he even said like he's not a poem, uh, a poet, poet or yeah. um, anything like that. But what he said, I, it was very profound in my opinion. He he said, "Thanks for the past. Enjoy the moment. Let's make sure we end it right." And they did, and they they accomplished everything that they said they were going to do. I think why it was so meaningful though to that team and to the viewers of of the Last Dance. And watching it is because you never really saw emotions from Michael like this. You know, you saw the anger and the frustration on the court, but you never saw stuff like this because he was never really a vulnerable person. And honestly, you didn't see that until after his dad died. And Steve Kerr kind of talked about that, how they really didn't discuss that, you know, between their fathers because he wasn't really that kind of guy you went to and told that kind of stuff to. And so seeing seeing this from Jordan and hearing it, especially with his teammates, like that, that's great because, again, you don't get those emotions day in, day out with him. It was definitely a big takeaway from the show is that Michael's definitely a little more vulnerable emotionally than you would have you would have ever thought. Yeah. Um. All right. That that's all. I, all I had really. Tyler, do you want to just say some final thoughts on what you thought of the documentary as a whole, and then Jake will share his, and I'll share mine. Yeah, man. I mean, there was a ton of ton of good stuff. I think off the top, and that's the best documentary I've ever seen. You know, Michael was so important to me as like a kid growing up. I've got a, I got a Jordan logo tattooed on my back. You know, I mean, this guy was was most Superman for sure in the, for a kid growing up in the '90s, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And I took away, I learned a lot. You know what I mean? I thought I really knew, you know, and I knew a lot about Michael Jordan. I, you know, I've I've followed him, you know, obsessively, and it was cool to peek behind the curtain. And, you know, get some new info on a guy that I kind of thought I knew everything about. I think what was really great that you knew the end result of it, obviously them winning their titles, but like how they got there and like the little nuggets here and there from seeing the practice runs when he was filming Space Jam to hearing different interviews from a lot of his teammates. Because, again, I knew he was a competitive basketball player I didn't know to what extent and he really meant that he needed to win at all costs and you really saw that in different parts of this but you also again like I just touched on you see his vulnerable side after his father passing and even the poem that we just discussed but throughout the throughout the journey of them getting to that last ring you see like it wasn't just a cakewalk for them they had to face some really tough teams in the Knicks and even for, for the finals they played the Jazz who didn't seem like they were a good team but they were a really good team and just seeing how they got there, I think, was cool. Because, again, when you just see the history of the Bulls, you just tend to overlook all of that, and you just see the six titles and MJ's success and his counterparts and his role players. But you don't see what it took to get there, like the struggles of the 80s when he came in to him being a rookie and that whole team was the cocaine circus. <laughs> like, come on. Like, you don't see that as a, as a, as a fan. You know, you just yeah. see it just like the glory days. No, the peaks behind the curtain were, were incredible. And for me... Uh, no, go Tyler. I did. I did. I did want to add that I did have one thing I forgot to say. Um, I, I noted that this documentary is definitely going to make me, I think, appreciate LeBron and and Kawhi and Steph Curry and Kevin Durant and Giannis and you know what I mean. Like it's just like these these guys are just so great and they're so rare that like you really got to appreciate it while it's around because you know no one's over. Yeah, we get we get all caught up in 
in all these debates, and we're even going to do it here in a few minutes when we, we talk about our top 25 players of all time. But, yeah, no, it's it's just all about appreciating the greats when they're here. Yeah. But for me, my, my final thoughts on The Last Dance, it was an incredible, incredible documentary, like Tyler was saying, probably the best documentary I've ever seen. Clearly, Michael Jordan had his say in it. I'm okay with that. I know a lot of people are criticizing it and saying it was a puff piece or Jordan propaganda. I'm fine with it being a puff piece. I'm fine with it being Jordan propaganda. I'm fine with it having an MJ slant and him having creative control and all all of that. I was entertained as hell from start to finish. I learned so much stuff that I didn't know before. And even with the, the pro MJ slant, they touched on a lot of stuff. I was surprised they touched on. They also glossed over a, a couple things that they could have gone more in-depth in. Nothing is perfect. It was a great documentary. Like Tyler was saying about having a maybe a new appreciation for LeBron James, I have a whole new appreciation for Michael Jordan and who he was as a basketball player, an athlete, a competitor, and a businessman. One thing we didn't talk about, though, was the jumping around of the timeline and everything. For some reason, that made people kind of mad. It made people kind of mad. I was fine with it. I was under. I I completely understood when they were switching back and forth and what year it was and what series they were in. Um, I know some people were bothered with it. I was cool with it. And yeah, that's that's so crazy that people would be critical of this this documentary. <laughs> the timeline, it, it's like the timeline makes sense. You you you're telling the story of ninety seven ninety eight, but you can't just talk about. Scotty Pippen, you know, with no reference to right. who he is. Like, right. You can't talk about Dennis Rodman with no. It's like, come on, people. And it's like pro Jordan thing. Fuck. Like, you got to miss it with that. That is just ridiculous. You can't tell the story of the Bulls without being pro MJ. Yeah. MJ was. And this, and it's just like the critics is so MJ because people still have that hatred. They don't want to see him on top. And it, I don't think. I don't think it tells any sort of like disillusion to what MJ brought. If anything, it it doesn't even do it justice, which is the crazy part because Michael put magic in the air. If you were if you went out to a sports bar tomorrow night and they were showing the last dance, they were like even just watching it alone at home, the magic in the air that Mike brings is just like insane. You know what I mean? You love it, you hate it, whatever, but you can feel it. It's crazy and this documentary embodied it. So it's just like, it's, it's funny to hear that people would be kind of like critical of that. Yeah. Forget those haters. Forget the haters, man. (laughs) They they probably hated them in the nineties too. Kobe always said they only hate the great ones. Exactly. So, and then like, fuck those guys, bro, Jordan, get out of here. We kind of already touched on it too. Obviously people, were probably not happy with how they were portrayed, some of the subjects in the documentary. But that's what happens when the main subject of the documentary has creative control. They can control the narrative, and there's no doubt that MJ controlled the narrative of this documentary. But like I said, I don't have a problem with it. I was entertained as hell. ESPN, Jason Hahir, the director, and Michael Jordan did a hell of a job with The Last Dance, and it was one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. I'd have a problem with it if I thought the narrative was changed in an untrue way, but Jordan told the narrative in a truthful way. I think that, so it's like, is it a perfect 100% story? No, everyone's going to have, you know, we could have talked about that season. You could have done a hundred hours on it. 
Yeah. But uh, I think that it didn't it didn't slander it didn't fade from the truth in in a in a massive way in my eyes. Yeah. Oh, this just popped into my head, and I guess because we haven't really talked about it, but in regards to Michael, and this will be the last thing on it. We we saw how competitive he was. We saw a peek behind the curtain into his mentality and all of that. How does Jordan deal with the mediocrity of the Hornets? How does he deal with it? Or how come no one talks about the Wizards, you know? It's, well, it, and it, I think... It, it, is, it, it is funny because he has had basically no success post... Post-Bulls. Post-Bulls outside of financially they but he has but kind he, of been shamed for how he's ran that team him and charles barkley are not on good terms because charles barkley has come out and said as an analyst he said that that organization has been ran poorly yeah and jordan is the one running the organization and yes they're close friends but that's not also anymore. that not anymore but that's charles not. barkley's job he's an analyst and so i think jordan maybe should appreciate it in a sense of him flat out saying like dude you're running this organization horribly and rightfully so, because that that organization, the Hornets, are not very good. I think that there's a group of like star players that can't be coaches and managers because they can't remove themselves from. Yeah, it. you know what I mean. I just don't think. I think that when he's managing this team, he's managing it like he's Michael. You know, like the player would. It's like, dude, these guys aren't Michael Jordan. They're not gonna. You can't like forge these Michael Jordans. Can't forge these work ethics. It's like. You know he's complete. He he has like he hasn't had any success as a manager, and I think it's because he really just can't separate himself from the players. He still thinks he can go out there and beat them one on one. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's like man, you know, I, I don't know if that's the right like mentality you want. Yeah, but I don't know. I just it was a question that popped into my head, and I had kind of seen it floating around other places, so I wanted to hear your guys' yeah. thoughts on it. But all right, that's fair. That's that's fair criticism of Jordan for sure. Yeah, but all right, let's move on to the last topic of the night. We had ESPN release their top seventy-four players of all time. I believe it was last week, May thirteenth. So yeah, seven days ago today, uh, they released their top seventy-four players, and it was a pretty controversial list. Uh, did you guys think there were any players that were ranked too high, ranked too low? No, oh, there was a bunch on my list that I thought that were <laughs> placed in weird spots. Any come on, Scar, you, you know, come on, Scar, you know, I had issues with the, the list. Yeah. I definitely did a good. I thought they did a good job with the group of seventy-four. You know, like obviously there's some guys that got snubbed and maybe a couple that shouldn't have got in, but as a group, I thought there was a good group of seventy-four. Although the rankings of them. Or the kind of the head scratcher. Yeah, the placement of them. The, the group of seventy four. I agree, Tyler was was a pretty solid group. I didn't really have any arguments with players that made the list. It was more of of where they were ranked. Um, obviously, yeah, I, try, I tried to think of snubs, and it was pretty tough. So that shows you that they put together a good list. I just obviously the the you know, and and again, we do a lot of lists, so uh, we kind of stress this point quite a lot. It's like. When you're dealing with these kind of lists where it's like if you're a top 74 basketball player ever, you're an amazing uh, all-time great. So it's like nitpicking. So it really is, you know, kind of an opinion-based thing. Yeah. Like, I mean, obviously the biggest controversial placement for me, obviously, was Kobe getting placed at nine. 
Yeah, see, that to me is way too low. Yeah. He should be a little bit higher. I don't want him to be maybe well, top three, but I don't think he should be uh, out of the top five. We 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 covered a list similar to this a couple of years back, and when when ESPN brought out their list in, what, 2018 or whatever, where they did a top 100 like this, yeah. or top 50 or something, they had Kobe at 13 at that point. Yeah, so and he so, moved up technically. Yeah, it, it's just – it's um it's just maddening what are they thinking you know i can't believe you can have you know duncan and and bird ahead of of kobe it's just crazy yeah but that was not the only thing i had an issue with what else did you have an issue with i mean there i was just tons of i mean there was some big time uh some big time moves i made i thought for the most part like i said it was it was solid grouping but i would move a lot of people all right so, well, then let's just get into our top 25 then. Yeah, for sure. Let's do it. You want to do it just just like. I, I, I figured go. we'll go five at a time. So we'll start 25 to 21 yeah. and then go upwards from there. All right. Well, you guys go first. and Because, like, the person I want to talk about the most is in this range. So Okay. Well, go first. all right. So I'll just say my 25 through 21, and then Jake will say his 25 through 21, and then you'll do your 25 through 21. Yeah, for sure. All right. So 25 for me is Carl Malone. 24 is Isaiah Thomas, the Detroit Piston. 23 is David Robinson. 22, Dirk Nowitzki. 21, Kevin Garnett. All right. Just before I give my list, this was an incredibly hard list. I told Sklar before we started the show, I was like, I had a hard time putting this together, but I maybe put in too much thought and second guessing. But 25, I have Steph Curry. 24, I have Jerry West. 23, I have Reggie Miller. 22, I have Isaiah Thomas again, the Detroit Piston. 21, I have uh, Kevin Durant. Okay. Yeah. Tyler? Yeah, I like it. I like it. Uh, all right. So, 25, I got D-Wade. Just snuck in there. Interesting. He was twenty. He was 26 on. Um, but when I when I did my Mount Rushmore of shooting guards, he's on it. So, it's like, fuck, I got I to gotta get him up there. Yeah. Uh, 24. 24, I had Isaiah Thomas. Uh, 23, I had Allen Iverson. Um, 22, I had Kawhi Leonard. And uh, 21, I think, is my most controversial pick. ESPN had my 21 at rank 62. Whoa. Um, and, it's, and it's Dennis Rodman. Okay. Uh, I think I think that Dennis Rodman got, got the, the harshest of the harsh, probably. Like, the most dramatic for me, personally. But... It's just crazy to me that you would be left out. Um, you know, just some highlights to me, I think, that stand out. It's like five rings. So he's got the same amount of rings as Kobe. I think he's got the same defensive ability as Kawhi Leonard. He can guard all five positions. To me, he's the greatest rebounder ever outside of maybe Will Chamberlain. So he's got he's got Will rebounding, Kawhi's defense, Kobe's, Kobe's rings. He's got, like, the spirit of Allen Iverson on the court. Uh, you know, five rings, two defensive player of the year. He led the league in rebounds seven years in a row. Uh, no one's ever done that. Not Bill Russell, not Will, no one. Um, and he was averaging 17 and 18 rebounds a game during that stretch. So, yeah, he led the he led uh, the league in rebounds seven straight years. No, yeah, which no one had done. And he shot over 50 percent for a, for a career. So it's not like just because of one category. I think. 
I think there's two factors to why he was number 62 on ESPN and number 21 on mine. And I think that it has to do with his, just his personality and people, you know, don't want to accept kind of the, the rebel spirit and the fact that he's not a, uh, you know, doesn't average, you know, 15, 20 points a game. Uh, they just want to, they want to hate, but it's, it's criminal to me to have him so low. And I definitely think that he's, you know, he's a top 25 player ever. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with you on the fact that him being ranked 62 by ESPN was way too low. I think he's definitely at least a top 50 player of all time. I wouldn't necessarily maybe put him in my top 25. I, I don't have him, but I could, obviously I see the argument, but, and I think he should is at least top 50 of all time. Yeah. So I, I, uh, I was just pretty strong. I want to think there's a ton of guys that like on this list that I would take over him regardless too, just his, his impact paid on to the, to the top 10 teams ever probably. Yeah. All right, Jacob, so who do you have 20 through 16? All right, so starting at 20, I have Dwayne Wade, then David Robinson, Dirk Nowinski, Kevin Garnett, and then Oscar Robertson. Okay. All right, for me, my 20 is Julius Irving. My 19 is John Stockton, 18, Elgin Baylor, 17, Oscar Robertson, 16, Jerry West. I left Jerry West off. Oh, man. This was how so, can you leave the logo it, it off, was Tyler? So, it was so tough. Oh, wait, no, I have yeah, I have Jerry West, but it was a couple players well, you named. Got, I couldn't put them on. Hey, he's got he's got one ring. He played in an era that when I come when I come to this list, I put everything into perspective. You know, it all goes into effect. I don't care what it is, what fact it is. You know, he played in, in you know, an era that wasn't as competitive, and I can't take it away from people like, Isaiah Thomas and Allen Iverson, uh, I think that they were better basketball players that could do more on the court than Jerry West. All right, one one, one ring he brought you. Your, Only your Finals MVP team. that on a losing team. Yeah, the, the 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 Finals MVP started in like 1969, so it's like there, you know there be there probably would have been more. I don't it's know. Just, I don't know. I, I don't think I know that he's great. I know that he's a top 50 player. He's not my top. He's not my top twenty-five. All and right. being from LA, you want you got a superstar for a decade. And you got you one ring. You'd be hating on him. You'd be burning his jersey on Instagram. <laughs> I don't know about that, but all right. Who do you got twenty through sixteen, Tyler? All right, twenty. I got KG. Uh, Nineteen. I got David Robinson. Eighteen. I got Pippen. Uh, Seventeen. I got Moses Malone. Uh, do you guys have Moses Malone in your top 25? No, I don't. But I, I think Moses Malone is top 50 for uh, sure. Uh, and then 16, I got the mailman, Carl Malone. Okay. Uh, Moses, Moses, since you guys don't got him, I mean, three-time MVP, got a championship, and, uh, you know, one of the one of the first kind of like prep-to-pro guys. Yeah, came out and, of high school uh, to the ABA. You know, dominant rebounder and scorer in the, you know, late 70s and 80s. Yeah, no doubt. All right, Jacob, 15 through 11. All right, so coming in at 15, I have Scottie Pippen, Carl Malone, Allen Iverson, Charles Barkley, and Tim Duncan. Okay. Yeah, Allen Iverson. Okay. Um, there was no way I was going to leave him off this list. I, I don't Champion, have that's, that's Championship or not. I don't have Allen in my top 25. Of course you don't. You got Jerry fucking well. <laughs> All right. 15 for me, Dwayne Wade. 14, Hakeem Olajuwon, 13, Steph Curry, 
12 Kawhi Leonard, 11 Kevin Durant. Damn. Oh, you already put Kawhi on this list. Yeah. Oh, no, I left him off. I Kawhi at 22. I had four four active players on my list. I have three active players on my list. Four active players on my list, sorry. I heard Barkley. I don't have Barkley on my list. No, I I don't have Barkley on my list. Oh, he made mine. Uh, uh, But uh, so what am I at, 15 through 11? Yeah, 15 through 11. All right, fifteen. This is probably controversial, but uh, I got I got Hakeem. A lot of people have him higher. I, have, I, got I had him at Hakeem. fourteen. Oh, okay, there we go. So I got Hakeem, and then at fourteen, I got Doctor J. Okay. Doctor J to me is on the Mount Rushmore of like evolutionary players. Then uh, another one of those evolutionary players. Thirteen, I got Oscar Robertson. Uh, Twelve, I got Kevin Durant, and at eleven, I got Duncan. Um, Kevin Durant, I believe, will retire in the top ten. So do I. Uh, I believe that as well. Just be, so uh, he's one of the four active players, along with Kawhi, that I've talked about. Um, so that you know, twelve is just you know, I can't quite put it. Like if he never returns to Kevin Durant, I can't quite put him past Duncan. But I think that he has a shot at passing people like Duncan, Bill Russell, you know, Larry Bird, Larry Bird, Larry Bird. Yeah, exactly. Those kind of guys. Yeah. All right. We've made it to the top 10. Jacob, you want to go 10 through 5, or do you yeah. guys want to just start going one by one now? No, that's this fine. We can, do, we can do five again, and then maybe when we this get is, to the top five, we'll go one by one. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so this I, I, is the nitty-gritty. Yeah, this, this, is, nitty-gritty this is definitely right when it got harder for me. I'd redid the list top, a couple top times. 10, top 10 hoopers ever. Yeah, top 10 hoopers ever. So at number 10, I have Akeem Olajuwon. At number 9, I have Shaq. 8, I have Larry Bird. Seven, I have Magic Johnson, and at six, I have LeBron. Wow! Yeah, oh, LeBron man, outside Chuck. the top five. Yeah, it was it was tough. Chuck, Again, this left Chuck this list was fired. really hard. Yeah, okay, it is hard. His career it is not is over. I, honestly, like the way you said about Durant, when it's all said and done, he's a top ten. I think when it's all said and done for LeBron, no question that he's in the top five or even top three. Okay, so you had Dream at ten. Who'd you have at nine? I had Shaq at nine. Shaq at nine. Bird, Bird at eight, Magic at seven, okay. and LeBron at six. I'm just, I'm just trying to mark. I want to mark this. This is just for comparisons. All right. All right. Number ten for me, Bill Russell. Number nine, Tim yeah. Duncan. Tyler, I'm, I think you're about to say you don't have Bill Russell in your top twenty-five. No, I wasn't. <laughs> no. That's not what you were going to say? Thank you. Uh, well, you spoiled it, but that's my number 10, too. Okay. That's what I was going to say. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> you keep going. Number eight. But, yeah, Bill Russell's my 10. That's what I was going to say. Okay. So, nine, Tim Duncan. Eight, Wilt Chamberlain. Seven, Larry Bird. Six, Shaquille O'Neal. Man, we have a really similar uh, six through ten score. That doesn't surprise me. <laughs> Yeah, damn. Okay, so I, obviously I have Bill Russell at 10, which I think that, you know, I think that we're being fair. I mean, he played in an era where there was eight teams. But um, he has he 11 rings, dom- so it's like, see, so I'm a little higher. Yeah, he, obviously, he obviously dominated his era. Exactly. And so it's like you can argue him as the number one. Yeah, but for sure. I think that it's fair. I think it's fair keeping him in the top 10 coming from the 60s era in today's basketball is just, 
an ode to respect to what he, you know, did for the foundation. But, you know, you can't really put it past these other guys. Yeah. But anyways, I got I got Bird at number nine. Um, number eight, this is like my favorite pick of the of the list, probably one of my favorite picks of the list. At number eight, I got Steph Curry. Okay. And, uh, I'm okay with and, that. And uh, I believe that, you know, I've said it, that I think, that, uh, you know, when Curry's all said and done, he's going to, I think he has the potential to pass Magic and maybe be a top five player ever. Uh, that's how much I, I, like, admire his game and the way he's changed. To me, he's just like Will Chamberlain, who is my number seven. Uh, these guys, like, change, they change the rules to stop these guys. They change the way people play. Uh, the gameplay is, is different because of people like Steph Curry and Will Chamberlain. And then at number six, I have the same number six as Squar, which this is, just kills me. But same, bro, same. same. Um, if you want it really quick, just ending on the, you know, my six through ten, Shaq. Basically, I just when it comes to him and Kareem, it, I think which is the argument for when it comes to me and Squar. At least I don't know about Jacob, but uh, it's it's. It's peak versus longevity, and Kareem just did it for so long. I, I I do believe that Shaq was at the better player, like in his best day ever. Uh, Shaq was more unstoppable, but Kareem's resume is just too unreal. So Shaq stayed at number six. Yeah, I I completely agree. It's it's the longevity and the peak and and all of that. I think Shaq is the most dominant center ever. I think Kareem is the most skilled center ever. With Kareem, obviously the the most undeniable unguard I wrote the shack at number six yeah so so where we got to talk where where are we at at number five all right so jacob you'll do your five then me five and then uh yeah, yeah. tyler yeah, yeah five, five to one, one, by yeah. one. okay yeah uh so one by, one by one one by one. one by one yeah all right so number five i do have kobe okay yeah so i know oh. he's a little lower for sklar's yeah, yeah, Rankin. Hey, you know, I, I, trust good, me, I wanted to put him higher. Some, it's good that we have, you know, not you know, people think there's too much bias or or we're not, you know. Yeah. Can't. I mean, five is pretty, still pretty good ranking. No, for sure. Good. No, top five all time is is some but of the highest praise. It comes to me, me and Scalar, it's going to be tough to like rate him higher. Yeah. yeah. For me, my number five, Magic Johnson. Magic. You also have Magic, I, uh, Tyler. No, my number five is Kareem. Okay. I, uh, I had I had the best. You know, at number four, I just had the best big. Um, and you know, I think there's there's some of the perimeter players I still think they are you know maybe even more important than Chad and Kareem, but Chad and Kareem were just so dominant. And like we said, I think Kareem's got one of the best basketball resumes of all time. Yeah. No, and Kareem is my number four. So and and that's really solely based off of resume. He's got one more ring than Magic. He has the longevity over Magic, even though obviously Magic's career was cut short because of him contracting HIV and all of that. But Kareem, all-time leading point scorer, the college resume that Kareem has yep. as well. Yep. It's yep. it for me. Kareem is number four. Jacob, who do you have the at four? The legend of Lou Alcindor. Yes. So at number four, I have Wilt Chamberlain. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Tyler, who do you have it for? Uh, all right. At number four, I got Magic Johnson. Okay. Uh, to me, Magic. To me, there's a clear, there's a clear, you know, Mount. Like I said, kind of, I've referenced Mount Rushmore. 
Uh, I think that Magic Johnson, uh, you've also heard me on the, uh, if you've listened to past episodes, I believe that the, the modern NBA started in 1980 when Magic and Bird entered the league. I think that Magic's so important. He's kind of just a pillar of, of how we've gotten here today. And so his role in kind of progressing the game, peaking, you know, into the future where now we're just now getting the point guards being his size and uh, just the ultimate facilitator. Um, yeah, I got to have Magic in my top four. I think that, you know, before MJ took it, he was the best player to ever live at one point. Yeah, no, David Stern said in the last dance that in 1992, the NBA was in 80 countries. And after the Bulls dynasty today, now the NBA is in 215 countries. But like you were saying, Tyler, that started with Magic and Larry in 1979, 1980. Magic winning yeah. the championship as a rookie. The, I the, think that... Yeah. No, just the Showtime, the Showtime era and the yeah. Boston Celtics and the Lakers rivalry is is what took the league out of the doldrums uh, that was the, the cocaine-riddled 70s. Yeah, the 70s were horrible, and then the 80s has, would really revamped it because well, of that rivalry. And in, the, and in the in the 70s, you know, the ABA was arguably the better league. It's right, the, more entertaining, had higher high-flying talent. Well, and more, progress, more progressive, just like, you know, closer to the – I think Dr. J had a huge influence on the league, and he was kind of – the ABA's kind of, you know – silver star um but uh yeah the um magic was kind of like when, in 1980 when magic bird and then the three-point line started and then it was like in 84 you got david stern and michael jordan uh, and then those those basically like those couple things are how you got to kobe and kevin garnett and dirk and to lebron and to zion totally. and luca you know? totally that's how that's how it happened you know you know Luca and Giannis are are two of the best players in the world right now, and they weren't born in the states. So it's you know it shows you like that's that's why I have like Maddie Johnson at you know four is just that importance to the progression of the game. Yeah. All right. So who do you have at three, uh, Jacob? I have Bill Russell at number three. Okay. There we, there we go. Yeah. I no. It, the 11, Eleven championships. Yeah. Listen. It. I think their cases for a lot of these players to be the best of all time or the greatest of all time. So it, it's really a, a matter of personal preference. Yeah. With and, these that, lists. and that ESPN one, I personally hated it. <laughs> a lot of people did. Uh, all right. Number three for me, uh, the fourth active player uh, that I have on my list, LeBron James. Yeah. This one I'm very defensive about. And, <laughs> these top three is just like <laughs> I'm so I'm so personally devoted to all three of them that I could, you know, I could argue for ten hours on all three of these guys. But I also have LeBron. But I want to mention that I truly do believe that the throne is can be taken. I do believe that LeBron is not done um, when it comes to his legacy. There's things that he can do that other people haven't done. Uh, he could play with his son. He could win championships after 20, you know, in his third decade. Like Bill on Clinton his third said, team? If he, either he could win championships with the third team uh, and with and with a franchise like the Los Angeles Lakers. So I, I think that LeBron James is the best basketball player we've ever seen. But 
as far as being just complete. But I just truly believe that these two guys, when it comes to just the greatest, the greatness, um, you know, why LeBron and Magic are three and four maybe is purely due to one, one character uh, trait and one kind of like game attribute. And it's the facilitator versus the killer instinct. And, you know, I'm sure I have the same top two score and the top two guys have killer instincts and, you know, LeBron and Magic, my three, four were facilitators. So that's really the only separation. Yeah. No, uh, I, Le- I couldn't agree Le- more, Tyler. LeBron, LeBron's story is not done. He, you know, like you said, he's an active player. He's number three all time. Could be number one, could be number two, best basketball player I've ever seen. Yeah, and listen, let's let's not forget that a lot of people are saying that the only reason Michael Jordan said yes to the last dance being made was because he felt his throne had a threat towards it in LeBron after winning the championship in 2016. LeBron's a real threat. I I, I don't I don't think anything like I, you can't talk me out of it. I mean, he, his career is is unreal. He's accomplished so much, and he's in his prime still in year seventeen. So, you know, let's talk in five years and ten years and see what what how it's aged. And MJ should be threatened because LeBron is a threat. We, as of right now, he's at number three, but that's not that's only because of the guys in front of him. Yeah, I think ultimately it would it would have to take something drastic for me to to move LeBron from up from from number three i mean if you won three in a row you know if you won if you won or if you won three in the next five years uh and you won a championship in year 21 or 22 you know if he's he could be you know he he's gonna fit he could be the all-time scoring leader which i think he's gonna get um he's he's gonna be he's gonna finish in probably the top three in assists all time definitely top five and he's probably going to finish in the top 10 of rebounding. And I haven't even looked up steals and blocks, but he's going to be a top 10, top five, number one in the big three categories all time. He's got, he's got rings. He's, he's more than likely going to get more. And uh, if I think that there's just things that he can just do to, to just kind of build upon his arsenal of accomplishments. He's, he's not even close. He's got five years in the tank. And that brings you out, what, year 21? Yeah. Year 22? So. All right, Jacob, who do you have at number two? So at two, Tyler mentioned that his resume is just completely stacked, and that's Kareem. Uh, I couldn't, totally I couldn't move fair. him out of that spot. Totally fair. Uh, for me, my number two, and it's probably Tyler's one, but ultimately, even with everything I saw from The Last Dance and the whole new appreciation I have for Michael Jordan – I don't think anybody is ever in my lifetime going to convince me that there is a better basketball player than Kobe Bryant. And Michael Jordan is my number two. Kobe's my number one. And I don't think that'll ever change in my, in my lifetime. That's just to me. Kobe Kobe is my Michael and it's like, yeah, it's pretty much as simple as that. No, I mean that's understandable. I do have I do have Kobe at two and MJ one. Yeah, and, but I mean it's just like I will argue Tom Blue in the face about Kobe and his basketball abilities. And when it comes down to it, we talked about it earlier. He's a carbon copy of Michael Jordan. So if you're if you're a Jordan person and you just praise and praise and praise Jordan, you can't have him basically anything less than two, just because it's like well if he's the closest thing. MJ, 
and he did. He had a, such a much, He had a harder time than Jordan did. For and sure. Jordan faced a ton. Jordan faced a ton of stuff, and but Jordan quit twice, and that's the fucking fact. Like he quit twice. He couldn't. He he couldn't handle it for whatever reason. Not. It's not a knock. It's not. It, he he he's still number one in my book. You know. But Kobe took the pressure of being the Michael Jordan of his era. He welcomed for 20 it. Years, for 20 years without a break. He never got a break. There was no, there was no break. You know what I mean? And, and so he took Michael's mentality and did it for 20 years. Michael didn't do that. Yeah. And, and so he, he didn't go 6-0 and in the playoffs. He didn't get the – or 6-0 and in the finals. He didn't get his uh, – he didn't get his due with the MVPs. Um, and so there's like little nitpicky things with him and MJ, but there's things that Kobe Bryant has over MJ. And for one, I think love of the game and just the tenacity of the everyday grind. Whereas Michael was grinded down twice and walked away from the game. Kobe would never dream of walking away uh, uh, from the game. And he, and he put that same fear in opponents and, you know, I can't talk well, well enough about Kobe, but, MJ, to me, you know, the documentary just summed up perfectly. He's a magician. who's just magic when it comes to Michael Jordan. Yeah, I think. Uh, he's he's the, the greatest, uh, probably the greatest athlete in American history. Yeah, and I, I think one thing, like you were saying, that Kobe even had the edge over Michael on a couple of things. I think one of the things that Kobe had the edge on over Michael was basketball IQ and how cerebral Kobe was in I think Kobe was the smartest basketball player of all time because of the way he was. He was like a- Manning. Yeah, exactly. And he was able to take yeah. things from Michael Jordan. Yeah, he was able to take things from Michael Jordan's game. He was able to take things from Larry Bird's game, Magic Johnson's game, Oscar Robertson's game. He studied the greats. Kobe was a true student of the game, and he was able to mash all of it together. Well, he even trained with uh, Elijah Wan, too, that one he summer. With, he trained with Elijah Wan. It's like you would never think a guard training with a center, but he wanted to learn Elijah Wan's footwork in right. post moves. Exactly, and as Kobe got older, his game developed into more of a post game, but he was still shooting it. He wasn't really a post player. And that's what one of the things I, I hold Kobe over Michael with is the basketball IQ and the student of the game and, and all of that. Um, but well, and I think, and I think, and I also, I think that, uh, I think that Kobe's championships with Powell and, and Odom and Biden are way, way more. He, he carried way more of a burden than Jordan ever did with any of those no doubt. championship teams with the Bulls. I mean, that, that supporting cast is, is like not even close to those Bulls teams. Yeah. So, all right, Jacob, you said your number two was Kareem is Kareem. I'm assuming your number one, one is, is MJ. Yeah. Okay. So gotta do it, man. Yeah. Gotta do it. So right. you know, so so I noticed something. I and I put it. I double checked it. Out of the top twenty-five guys, um, there's only three guys that never lost in the finals. So that whole six and zero thing is just like such a legendary, you know, reason why he's number one. So only him, Pippen, and David Robinson are the only ones that never lost in the finals. Wow. Uh, and um, he has six finals MVP, the next closest person, and has three. So no one has four, no one has five, no one has – and Jordan has six. Yeah. Uh, now, he, the war did start in 1969, so there's guys like Bill Russell and Cham- you know Chamberlain that might have gotten more. Uh, but 
he has six finals MVPs and six wins and six appearances. Um, and the difficulty of that, I think, is just like that's why his legacy is so tough to beat. And you, you know, you can't, you can't just like try to go undefeated in the finals for a career and do it more than six times. But you got to do something different. And I don't think that will ever be replicated because no. of the the way the league is set up and how competitive it competitive it is now. And obviously, with the league wanting parity, I don't think we are going to see multiple repeat champions in the NBA the ever LeBron, again. The fact that LeBron didn't do it should be like, it's like, dude, LeBron, look at this, this guy that's supposed to be like the one that takes the throne, you know? Look at Yeah, him. well, and the he, closest yeah, thing yeah, that you saw his, to it was the his, Warriors. And the, but well, the only three peats. Well, I was going to say, his, his biggest like issue is his win percentage in the finals. And it just shows you that the difference in age, it's like, Yo, if LeBron's not doing it, man, when is someone going to be able to do it? Right, and the only the only three peats in NBA history are when the Celtics won eight in a row back in the '60s, the Bulls two three peats, and the Lakers three peat in the early 2000s. The Lakers are the la- the Kobe and Shaq Lakers are the last team to three peat. Yep, yep, three peats are three peats are are probably a thing of the past. I mean, the fact that the Warriors didn't do it shows you that that's another. We all thought they were the going to do it. They they had a stranglehold on the league like the Chicago Bulls did, and maybe even more so. Um, and and they couldn't get it done. It's just it's tough nowadays. Yeah. So all right, do you guys want to run back our lists real quick? We'll go one through twenty five each, and then we'll we'll wrap it up and get out of here. Sure. All right. So Tyler, I'll, I'll yeah, start with your um, list, and then Jacob will go, and I'll I'll close out mine. So I go, uh, I go Michael Jordan, Kobe, LeBron, Magic, Kareem, Shaq, Will, Curry, Bird, Bill Russell, Duncan, KD, Oscar, Dr. J, and Hakeem. Then I got Carl Malone, Moses Malone, Scottie Pippen, David Robinson, Kevin Garnett, and then Dennis Rodman, Kawhi Leonard, Allen Iverson, Isaiah Thomas, Dwayne Wade. All right, I have Michael Jordan, Kareem, Bill Russell, Will Chamberlain, Kobe, LeBron, Magic, Bird, Shaq, Hakeem. Tim Duncan, Charles Barkley, Allen Iverson, Carl Malone, Scottie Pippen, Oscar Robertson, Kevin Garnett, Dirk Nowinski, David Robinson, Dwayne Wade, Kevin Durant, Isaiah Thomas, Reggie Miller, Jerry West, and Stephen Curry. All right, and then for me, number one, Kobe Bryant, two, Michael Jordan, three, LeBron James, four, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, five, Magic Johnson, six, Shaquille O'Neal, seven, Larry Bird, eight, Wilt Chamberlain, nine, Tim Duncan, ten, Bill Russell, eleven, Kevin Durant, twelve, Kawhi Leonard, thirteen, Steph Curry, 14, Hakeem Olajuwon, 15, Dwayne Wade, 16, Jerry West, 17, Oscar Robertson, 18, Elgin Baylor, 19, John Stockton, 20, Julius Irving, 21, Kevin Durant, or excuse me, 21, Kevin Garnett, Kevin Garnett, the power forward, not Kevin Durant, Uh, 22, Dirk Nowitzki, 23, David Robertson, 24, Isaiah Thomas of the Detroit Pistons, and 25, Carl Malone. So, all right, that is all three of our top 25 players of all time. So do you guys have any shout-outs before we get out of here? I don't have one this week. Tyler, you got one? I don't, but I got I got a... You got a retro got game? game? Yeah, he's got well, a recommendation. Tonight, they're, they're, well, they're they're showing it tonight, though, but if you, if you can, you got to watch game six in Utah. And, oh. And so just to, the game, just to watch, they're, they're showing it tonight, you know? Yeah, so it's 
It's a uh, game six. They're calling it game six. The movie. The movie. So what they well. did is ESPN compiled all the footage that the last dance cameras had of game six of the NBA finals in 1998. And then they obviously put the, the commentators over the video, but you're not watching it as if it's a regular game where you're just panning back and forth between the two sides of the court. You're getting all the camera angles from all of the last dance cameras that were placed around the arena. So it's really cool to see the game in that perspective. I was watching the East Coast feed on uh, my laptop before we started recording, and it was was really cool. I hope that they they just put it up on the ESPN app for me to go back and watch the whole thing. I'm I'm sure they will. And what I was going to say is, you know, if you can – if you can get that stream, that's like best case scenario. But if you can't, the game is in full, like how it was broadcasted on YouTube. So if you don't have access to either ESPN or you know a streaming a streaming website to watch that, uh, you can watch it on YouTube. And and I think the best part about it is the ending, so you can kind of see how the game was back and forth, and it wasn't a sure thing Chicago was going to win. In fact, a lot of people thought Utah was going to win up until the very last second. So yeah. You can kind of see the buildup that, that, you know, of how great of a moment it was. Yeah. All right. And then my shout out, I kind of talked about it a couple of weeks ago, or I guess it was maybe two months ago now. Who knows with time? My timing and days and weeks are all getting blended yeah, together. Yeah, time doesn't exist right now. Um, but I know I have mentioned it on the show already, but the match champions for charity, uh, it's going to be taking place this Saturday. It's the golf match between Phil, Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady being teamed up to go against Tiger Woods and Peyton Manning at the Medalist Golf Club in Hobe Sound, Florida. That's Tiger Woods' home course. It's going to be Sunday, uh, this Sunday, May 24th. The event will be broadcast live starting at 2 p.m. Eastern time with coverage on TNT, TBS, True TV, all of that TNT Turner family I'm sure you can find it on any of those channels. Uh, Between the two sides, $10 million will be donated to coronavirus relief efforts along with some other uh, charitable donations and foundations. Peyton and Tiger are the favored tandem in this matchup. So I'm definitely excited to watch it and see what kind of trash talk takes place between four of the greatest athletes to ever play any sport, really, not just in their own respective sports, but in all of sports. It's going to be so classic. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for it. But yeah. with that, that wraps up this episode of the Sports Kingdom Show. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you decide to listen to the Sports Kingdom Show so you can stay up to date on the newest episodes of the show. Don't forget to follow at TSK show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and follow all of us at the Duke of sports at Tyler Pacholke and at Jacob double underscore Gonzalez. We appreciate you all so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode of the TSK show. Peace.